So <clears throat> let's jump in. Um, so confession. Uh, after Lucas asked me to preach on this passage, and I read through it, um, I thought, really? Like, I'm going to get the boring passage? I, I'm sorry, I don't know what you guys talked about, and maybe you found some really amazing things when you first read it, but I was just like, okay, sure, okay, yeah, I'll do it. But haven't we read this story before? It sounds familiar. I mean, the apostles, they go into a city, they find a synagogue, they proclaim the gospel, some people believe, others become angry. However, the difference in this story is that there are no sexy healings. There are no exorcisms. There's no angel of the Lord breaking people out of jail. There are no long speeches to the Sanhedrin. I mean, it, it, to me, this passage feels like a journal entry. A journal entry about the everyday encounters, the wins and losses of missionary work. That's what this feels like. Last week, Lucas shared on the passage where Paul and Silas, they were put in jail because they, they had casted a demon out of a, a, a spirit of divination, out of a slave girl. And they were put in jail, and then they start singing and praying. Basically, they have a worship service in the middle of the jail. There's an earthquake. I mean, the, 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 the doors come open. The chains are loosened. The prison guard gets saved. His house gets saved. And I'm like, shoot, that should have been my passage. Yo, I could have rocked that, like, for real. Like, I could have rocked that passage, but instead, here we are. So, Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's with Timothy and Silas. And they enter Thessalonica, which is a Greek port city. They find a Jewish synagogue, and it says, as was his custom. Again, this is ordinary, right? He goes and he preaches, he finds a synagogue, he, he preaches, he spends three weeks reasoning with these people. Some Jews, uh, God-fearing Greeks, and quite a few women, they believe and join them. That's pretty significant. So I guess that is pretty extraordinary. I don't want to, I know now that I read that, I'm like, that's pretty cool. Um, but, but then you had other Jews who didn't particularly like what they had to say, so they rounded up some bad characters, which, what the heck is that? Like, some bad hombres or something, I don't know. I'm just saying that's the first thing that came to mind when I read that. And they form a mob and they start a riot. And then you got Jason over here. Uh, who, who actually, Jason was a, uh, a Jewish convert, and his home was known as a place of refuge for Christians. And so they immediately go to Jason's house because they know Paul and Silas and Timothy got to be there. And they drag his behind out, literally. And, and, and Paul and Silas escape. They go to Berea, and what do they do? The same thing. They find the Jewish synagogue. They proclaim the gospel. But the Berean Jews have a very different response. They're like, yes, yes, there was a hunger for truth among the Berean Jews. Many of them believe, as well as many Greek men and women. But then you find that those Thessalonian Jews, they follow them to Berea, and they start stirring up trouble there too. 
But this story feels ordinary to me. I mean, there's conflict, there's risk, there's successes and failures, but nothing really extraordinary. And the reality is that that's true of most of our missionary ventures. They're just kind of ordinary. You know, this passage, to me, isn't exciting, but it is relatable. This passage is us trying to share Jesus with our neighbor for the third time. It's us attempting to gather people at our job for Bible study. Some people are interested, but most just look the other way. This passage is conflict with our boss or coworkers that believe we need to leave our faith at church and out of the workplace. This passage is the awkward and at times explosive conversations with family over dinner. It's an outreach on campus where students come to faith after you share about the justice of Jesus in a world full of evil. It's you and your microchurch brainstorming new ways to create safe spaces for people to engage Jesus and community. This is how it is. It's up, it's down, people accepting the truth of Jesus and others rejecting it. This is real missionary life. This passage is real missionary life. But there's something else very familiar about this passage. And as I read it over and over again, and I got over my whole, this is boring, why am I doing this? After I got past that, I felt the Holy Spirit bring me back to this one line. But other Jews were jealous. Did anybody talk about that? Raise your hand. Did anybody talk about that particular? A few of you did. But other Jews were jealous. We see a stark contrast between the Thessalonian Jews and the Berean Jews. So the Berean Jews are described as of more noble character. There is an eagerness that leads them to examine the scriptures, which brings them to a place of belief. But even though some of the Jews in Thessalonica are persuaded, others were jealous. Jealous. I find that so odd. Their response to the gospel, their response to Paul and Silas was not disbelief or doubt, which you would, you would think that's the opposite, right, of belief is disbelief and doubt. But their, their response was jealousy. They didn't doubt. They didn't question. They didn't disbelieve. They were jealous. Jealous enough to incite a riot. Jealous enough to run them out of town. I mean, the truth is, this gospel that Paul and Silas were preaching was disrupting the social order of the Jewish faith. Because unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Everybody knew that. Jewish men had to adhere to strict rules. They had to memorize the law. They had to practice certain rituals, observe the Sabbath, all in order to have access to God. And even then, they fell short. And now these people are preaching a message saying anyone, anyone, man, woman, Jew, Gentile, could receive salvation if they just believed that Jesus was the Messiah without having to work for it. Without having to work for it. It's interesting because in Paul... 
Paul in Acts 13 was preaching and he said this, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Guys, for the Jews, the gospel was offensive. It was offensive because their laws, their rituals were not a guarantee to salvation. And this displacement destabilized them. And as an oppressed people, the little power that they had because of their faith and heritage was threatened. And Paul and Silas were gaining influence among the people, and these other Jews felt threatened. I mean, their jealousy even took them as far as aligning with their oppressors. Right? Because when those oppressors were of benefit to them and their cause... They were like, hey, 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 they're all defying Caesar's decrees. They're saying there's another king. They actually sought the help of their enemy to fight against their own people. But other Jews were jealous. The last time I remember talking about jealousy was in high school at uh, an all-girl sleepover with my youth group. I'm serious. That was the last time I feel like I had a direct conversation, teaching, Bible study on jealousy. The truth is, guys, I want to believe that we're past that. I want to believe that, you know, jealousy is something that we deal with early on in our discipleship. But then we mature and we move on to more sophisticated sins like pride. I mean, jealousy feels petty and immature, <laughs> doesn't it? It feels immature, it feels petty. When was the last time, you don't have to answer this, but just think about it, when was the last time you or someone you know admitted they were jealous? That at the core of their Whatever feelings, their interactions, was jealousy. When was the last time you admitted that? Someone admitted that to you. No one is saying that out loud. No one wants to confess that. I mean, I certainly don't because it feels childish, and I've been following Jesus 23 years. I'm not going to say I'm jealous. But the truth is, family, that this insidious and pervasive sin was part of the community in the early church, and it is most certainly a part of the church now. I looked up the word jealous because I just thought, man, I think I know what this means, but let me look this up. Jealous is defined as feeling or showing envy of someone or their achievements and advantages. Listen to this. Envy is the emotion of coveting what someone else has, while jealousy is the emotion related to fear that something you have will be taken away by someone else. When jealousy goes unchecked, when jealousy is allowed to fester, this is what it breeds. Competition. Comparison. 
bitterness, resentment, and us versus them mentality. An inability to celebrate and affirm the gifts in others. It actually breaks relationship. It leads us to withdraw from community, to slander others, and can even lead to violence and hatred as we see in this passage. Proverbs 27.4 says, anger is cruel and fury overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Jealousy feels childish and immature, but it has real adult-level impact. Listen to that again. Jealousy, it does feel childish and immature, but it has real adult-level impact. It affects each of us differently. It manifests itself in a variety of ways. And this past week, as I was prepping, I had to come face to face with the impact of jealousy in my own life. See, that's what happens when you preach or teach the word. You have to go to the altar first. You got to let the Lord sort you out. You have to respond to the word that the Holy Spirit is revealing before you can deliver it to someone else. Needless to say, this, this week was rough. And I'm going to be really vulnerable with you guys this morning and put myself out there. When my jealousy is unconfessed and ignored, it brings up feelings of insecurity, uncertainty about my worth and value, and I begin to compare myself to others and become resentful and judgmental. That's me. That's Melissa. When I was um, a student at the University of South Florida, I felt a strong um, burden to reach out to Latino students. So I was a part of a university, and towards the end of my, um, you know, my, my senior year, I felt this, this just burning, like I need to reach my people. And so I started gathering um, the Latino students in my chapter, and we started dreaming and praying, what would it look like for us to create a space for Latinos to come and be themselves, to, to hear the word of God, to be healed, to be reminded that there is a plan and purpose for their lives, and that their ethnic identity is a blessing and not a curse. Like, th this was... Uh, Eight, almost 10 years of my life with InterVarsity was thinking, dreaming about Latino students and what would it look like for the kingdom of God to reign among that particular group of people. And yo, guys, I, it was an incredible uh, 10 years of my life, um, but it was lonely. <laughs> Because, so, you know, I was a student when I started La Fe, but then I came on staff with InterVarsity. And at that time... I was the only official La Fe staff in Florida. Um, so Dan Rodriguez was also on staff with InterVarsity in St. Pete, um, but he wasn't specifically reaching Latino students, and, and, and he, he wasn't really considered like La Fe, like Latino fellowship staff. Um, but we did do a lot of work together, but it was really lonely. And at that time, no one was really paying any attention to Florida. I was out there doing my thing, trying to meet students, trying to gather people, and, and nobody called me, nobody, like nationally, because La Fe is a national organization, it's a national movement. Um, and they had a leadership team, and they had 
people in other, especially in California and California and Texas and New York doing this kind of ministry, but nobody knew anything about Florida. And it kind of felt like to me, like nobody really cared about Florida. And I remember going to like um, a La Fe staff conference and just feeling completely ignored. And I, I would think, man, these people should be excited. There's like a La Fe staff from Florida. There's been no ministry to Latino students in years. And now here's little old me and I'm here trying to do my thing and nobody really asked me anything. No one, nothing. And so when I left uh, InterVarsity staff, um, so when I started, it was, it was a, a group at USF. But when I left, there was a group at UT, at HCC, at UCF, in South Florida, and in Gainesville. And I was not just the only staff, there was like five or six other staff. And of course, people are like, oh, oh, Florida. Oh, okay, okay, y'all doing something. Okay, okay. And then I start hearing that they're like flying students and staff over to California for trainings. And they're giving these one-on-one -on -one mentoring calls and coaching and inviting um, staff to be on like task force to, to think about strategies and reaching um, Latino students all over the U.S. And I was like, what the hell? Are you serious? Are you serious? Instead of celebrating God's provision, Instead of seeing the connection between my work to bring attention to the ministry of La Fe in Florida and the resources and investment now being given to these students and staff, I was resentful and bitter. What about me? I didn't get nothing. Nobody called me. Nobody was checking on me. No one was praying for me. And even now, even now, as I'm saying this, I feel it. I feel it. <laughs> Yo, my jealousy obstructed my view of God and intercepted my worship. My jealousy obstructed my view of God and intercepted my worship. What I should have asked myself in the middle of my pity party was, is God doing something? Is God doing something that I'm resisting because I'm jealous? University also has this conference called, uh, now it's called Meta, but when I was on staff, it was called Sunburst, and it's a statewide conference, really awesome. Um, it used to be in Orlando, and I remember, um, I think it was like my second or third year um, with InterVarsity as a student, I was invited um, to be a part of the worship team for Sunburst. And I was super excited, but super nervous. And at that time, Jason Thompson, who is now in Germany, um, he was my staff worker. And he had told me, okay, Melissa, we're going to do this song, King of Glory, Have Your Glory. You need to learn this part. You need to make sure that you know the harmony. And you're going to be singing with Justin Jarvis, who is this worship leader from somewhere else. He's coming, and, and I need you to be ready and make sure you listen to this song, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, cool, I got it. I'm going to be ready. So I get to Sunburst, and I'm like, okay, we're doing this, we're doing this. And Keisha was there, too. Keisha was on the worship team. We were doing this together. 
<laughs> and so we're there, and, you know, we're, like, nervous, and our hearts are racing, and we're on that big stage with all these people, and, you know, and, and at that time, this is how I used to lead worship. You guys don't know that because you didn't know me back then, but at that time, this is how I used to lead worship with the mic down here. And Jason was always like, and I would, <laughs> I would start here, and then all of a sudden, uh, just terrified out of my mind. Oops. Oh my gosh. Can we turn that off? Okay. <laughs> Stuff like that actually happened. Now I'm off here. Um, <laughs> so, anyways, we're doing our thing, and this girl shows up. And she comes up on stage like she owns the stage and she grabs the mic and she's laughing and, you know, talking. This is Justin's friend. And here she comes and she's just like, okay, we're going to do this in the key of E. And I'm like, what the heck? I don't even know what the key of E is. Like, and she's talking the lingo and she's doing her thing and she's confident and she's holding the mic like this. And she knows the harmony for that song because she was actually on a recording with Justin singing that song. And I'm just like, uh, uh, mm-mm, mm-mm, I'm out. I'm out. Well, y'all don't need me anymore. You got the superstar, the rock star right here. You don't need me. And Keisha and I were both like, yeah, we're out. They don't need us. She's over here telling people about the key of E and G. And I don't even, I felt insecure. I felt displaced. I started questioning, why am I here? She's a better worship leader. She's a great singer. She can speak all the musical lingo. They don't need me. And when I compared myself to her, I just felt lame. I wanted to leave. And I told Jason, I want to leave. I don't need to be here. Because surely there wasn't enough room for two worship leaders on the stage. And what happens is that I was no longer thinking about my role to serve the community in worship. Rather, I was thinking about how much better she was than me. So that servant's heart was gone. Was I there to serve or to perform? So I'm dealing with all of this this week, right? The Lord's just bringing up all this stuff. But of course, because the Holy Spirit is going to poke and dig, he was like, let's bring it a little closer. Let's bring it a little bit more current. Like, okay. And you guys all know Keisha. She's incredible. She is amazing. I've known Keisha for 18 years. Pre-Ryan, pre-Jaren and Evan, <laughs> pre-everything, I knew Keisha. And I love this woman. She is my best friend. She is my sister. She is gifted. She, I, I don't think there's another woman in my life besides my mom that I respect more, that I have more admiration and Keisha, if you know her, I mean, you've seen her speak up here. If you just have one conversation with her, you know immediately Keisha is prophetic. Keisha will read you your life. <laughs> okay, if you're not ready to go deep, don't talk to her. Because she will start asking you these ninja questions that will cut you up. I'm telling you right now. I'm serious. 
And she does it in a way that it's like, oh, shoot, I'm bleeding. I didn't even know she cut me. She is a prophet. She has a strong prophetic gift, and she's confident in that gift. She is secure in the role that she plays in our community as a prophet. And that makes me, who's also a prophet, insecure. I told you I was going to put myself out there. You see, she's a pastoral prophet, and I'm an apostolic prophet, and at times I can come off like a jerk because I don't always know how to care for people. And I feel this tension of wanting to suppress my prophetic gift because it doesn't look like hers. It's like I I need to find a different gift because there's not enough room for more than one prophet here. And guys, I didn't know that this was in me. But again, you got to go to the altar first, right? So the Lord was like, you want me to cleanse you? You want me to create in you a pure heart? And you let me need to bring to surface the, the, the garbage, the darkness. And again, I said, I love her. I love her. And even saying this out loud, it hurts me because she is my friend. No one else is more for me than that woman. We've been through a lot, and she still loves me and supports me. And I love her prophetic gift. But I am jealous of it because I'm not that confident. Because I'm a little unsure. I don't even want to say it out loud that I'm prophetic. I don't even want to say that. I feel very insecure about that. And so I confessed this to Keisha this week because I didn't want to say all of this. And then she'd be like, what the, why you didn't tell me? (laughs) So I needed to confess it beforehand. And you know what? Keisha said, you know, I had similar feelings of insecurity in the past that made her want to diminish her prophetic gift because her prophetic gift didn't look like other prophets. And she is confident now, but that was not always who she was. She was also very insecure and unsure because prophets look one way, and that's not her. But praise be to God that Jesus has and is still liberating Keisha because we are all better for it. We are all better when she offers the fullness of the gifts the Holy Spirit has given her to edify the body. It's better for everyone when all the prophets in our community are operating freely in their gift. When our jealousy is unconfessed and unchecked, it affects the whole community. I actually believe that it becomes a hindrance to the kingdom coming. It becomes a barrier to depth and authenticity in our relationships. How can we engage every kind of evil when the person next to us feels like competition and not a co-laborer? Let me say that again. How can we engage every kind of evil out there when we see the person next to us that God has called us into community with as competition and not a co-laborer? 
How can the kingdom come when our jealousy stirs up insecurity and doesn't allow us to live into the fullness of how God created us because, well, she's a better communicator and he's a better teacher and she's a better mother and they're more creative, a better evangelist. They have a stronger marriage. I don't lead like him. I don't have that kind of money. All of that brings division. And you know what? That's the work of the devil. All of that brings division, and that is the work of the devil. And I want to ask you right now, can we draw attention to what God is doing and not who he's doing it through? Can we do that? Can we draw attention to what God is doing and not who he's choosing to do it through? But we do that, don't we? We do that. Because, see, God is the one that gives gifts. God is the one who calls. God is the one who sends and blesses. Therefore, our gaze needs to remain on him and not each other. Let me invite up the worship team. My two youngest boys uh, love playing video games. They love the Nintendo Switch. They will literally play that from sunup to sundown. Like, like literally, I'm not even exaggerating. Like, 7 o'clock in the morning, they will be there. And if I let them, they will be there at 7 o'clock at night. They forget to eat. They forget to eat. I remember one day Gabriel was playing, and, and it was like noon, and I'm fixing them lunch. And he was like, but I haven't had breakfast. I'm like, why haven't you had breakfast? Because I don't know, I just haven't had breakfast. And he's like, bawling. I'm like, really, dude? But they love the Switch. But the thing is, if you have children, and if your children like video games, you know what happens when they play video games. They, they get mad. They, it, it ends very badly at times. It gets violent. <laughs> and the other, uh, last Sunday, I think it was, we were at home church. And uh, my three boys, as well as uh, Keisha's two boys, were playing. And something happened. I, they were playing a game, and Gabriel, my youngest, he lost. And so he's, like, freaking out. And he's hiding under the desk. And Tom, I tried to go in there, but he, like, yelled at Tom, kicked Tom out, saying, no, get away from me. He was mad. And so Keisha was like, um, Melissa, you, can, you, can you get your son? Like, he is not acting right. So I go in there, and I'm like, Gabriel, come here. Come here, come here, come here, come to mama. I got to get all baby with him because I can't come in there strong because he, he does not get intimidated by that. He'll come back at me. I have to come in low. Gabriel, come here. You know, so I sit him on my lap and I'm like, baby, what's going on? And he's just mad because he lost. He's mad because he lost. That's at the end of the day, that's all that it is. He lost and he's just livid. And I'm like, Gabriel, you know that when you, when you win, other people lose, right? So when you win, other people lose. Like, everybody can't always win. <laughs> when there's a winner, that means there's also losers. Like, that's how it is. And you can't, you can't do this. You can't, like, fall apart every time that you lose. And I asked him this question. I said, 
when you win a game and Elliot gets mad and he's, he starts crying and he throws the switch controller and stomps out of the room, I said, how does that make you feel? And I was not expecting him to say this, but he said, I feel guilty. I'm like, you feel guilty? He was like, yeah, I feel guilty. I said, why do you feel guilty? He said, because I won and he didn't and that makes me feel guilty. And I thought to myself, man, does that happen with us? When we do well, when we achieve something, and we know that the people around us are going to feel some type of way, do we feel guilty? Does jealousy also manifest itself like that? Yo, jealousy is wicked. For us to feel guilty when the Lord is powerfully at work in our lives that we can't rejoice for fear that it will make others feel some type of way, that's wicked. That is wicked. We can't celebrate that God is moving, breaking down barriers because somebody next to us is feeling insecure. Jealousy may not necessarily be a sin that you personally struggle with. But another effect that jealousy has on our community is when we dim our light so as to not overshadow others. You know that? That too is jealousy. We dim our light. We minimize our accomplishments. We minimize our achievements. We feel uncomfortable when we receive praise because we feel the tension from the people around us that are fighting comparison, competition, insecurity that jealousy produces. We're self-deprecating and can't celebrate what the Lord is doing in us and through us. And that is not okay. That is not okay. We need to draw attention to what God is doing and not who he's doing it through. I don't want to blame jealousy for all of our communal dysfunctions. Right? Because there's a lot of reasons why communities break. But we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge the ways this sin affects all of us. And as leaders, we need to be watchful. We need to be watchful of how the enemy uses uh, jealousy to bring division and, and to make us impotent against the evil around us. Because when that division comes and it starts breaking people, breaking relationship, breaking trust, and people leave and they don't want to say they're jealous because we don't say that. We're not going to say we're jealous. We're going to say we had differences or, well, I, don't, I just don't feel free here. We use that kind of language. But what it is, is you're jealous. You are jealous. There's something that that person has that you want and you don't want to say that out loud. Or there's something that you have, certain privileges, positions, and titles, and you're afraid that someone else is going to take it away from you. As if that's not a gift. As if that's not the grace of God. You didn't deserve that. The Lord gave it to you because he loves you, not because you worked for it. Come on. And it makes us impotent. It makes us impotent to address and fight against the evil around us. And we need to be asking, how does jealousy manifest itself at your workplace? How does jealousy manifest itself in your microchurch? How does jealousy manifest itself in your family? How does jealousy manifest itself between men and women? 
How does jealousy manifest itself, worship team? How does it manifest itself? How does it manifest itself, underground staff team? How does it manifest itself? Between marriages, between moms, within communities of color? How does it manifest itself? Between men, between women? Yo, devoted conference is coming. You better believe the enemy is going to be stirring jealousy up. You better believe the enemy is going to be there whispering, saying you don't belong there. They should have asked you to lead that workshop. Believe me. And as leaders, we need to figure out, we have to figure out what it means to create a culture of celebration. We need to figure out how to, how to create a culture where people are affirmed and free to be themselves in the fullness of how God created them. Ethnically, culturally, spiritually, to bring their strengths, their weaknesses, their past, their present, their future, whatever season of life they may be in, there is room for everybody. How do we ensure that jealousy does not take root in our hearts? How do we ensure that jealousy does not take root in our communities? Leaders, I'm telling you right now, you must model vulnerability. You must confess and you must repent. Ask yourself, where am I susceptible to jealousy? Me, for Melissa, it's when I'm around people with similar gifts or in similar seasons of life. So when I'm around other Latino leaders, when I'm around mothers, worship leaders, women leaders, people living, uh, people my age living their best life. That's why I keep my behind off of Instagram and Facebook. It is not good for my heart. I don't need to see all of that because most of it's not real anyways. We need to identify those areas. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to heal us, to help us take our gaze off of people and turn back towards Jesus. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to give us courage and wisdom to walk in repentance. So when we enter those spaces and we are around those people, we remember that all of us, all of us are more than what we produce. All of us are more than our gifts. All of us are more than our skills and talents. We are more than our degrees, than our intellect and our money. We are more than our Instagram and Facebook profiles. We are more than our titles. We're going to take communion. But I ask you to take a moment. And to go before the Father. And I want to invite all of us to pray the words of David in Psalm 139. When he says, search me. God, know my heart. Test me, Lord. And if there's any offensive way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. As can we do that? The Father loves you. He knows you. Can you invite him? Can you be courageous enough to say, search me? Know me, test me. If there is an offensive way, bring it to the surface. Bring it out. I want to be free from this. I want to be free to be myself, free to love and celebrate what you are doing among the whole community.
So would you just take a moment right now? It's you and Jesus. Forget about who's next to you. Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when you're ready, I invite you, come take this communion. And if you need prayer, guys, don't hesitate to ask for prayer. I think there's going to be people lined up on the sides. But if the Lord is doing something, you don't resist it. Don't be embarrassed. His grace is sufficient. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance. So whenever you're ready the body and the blood of Jesus given for you.